Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You look at your watch, you assume there is a watchmaker. Otherwise, you would consider then that what the evolutionists and others would have us believe is that you could take all the contents of your watch, throw it into the air, and somehow, by coincidence, they all fall into the exact place in the exact timing to the exact specifications and start ticking at the exact right time. Or, since I was uh, blessed to go to the uh, symphony last night, you didn't know your pastor was so cultured, did you? (laughs) I didn't either. Um, But to hear the music of John Williams, you know his music. If you know Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones, that's his music. So many others you could name, but it would be like hearing a piece of music and assuming that John Williams sat down with all of those notes in his hand and just threw them up and quickly pushed the paper under them, catching them in the exact spot that they needed to fall in order to make the exact melodies and harmonies flow together in the exact rhythms they needed to go on to know when Darth Vader was coming into the scene and you'd hear the Imperial March coming. Like, that's what science and evolution would have us believe happened in creation, so as we start our, some of our D groups starting this week and life groups and going back through the Old Testament, we start, of course, at the beginning of the foundation of the foundation of everything, the beginning. I think it best to start with this one question offered to Job by God when Job began questioning God. God asked Job in Job chapter 38, verse 4, Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. Well, we know that we had absolutely nothing to do with creation. So did Job. When we think about the book of Genesis, we understand that it is a book of beginnings. In fact, that's the name itself. Genesis simply means beginnings. But in our pride... In our search for knowledge, sometimes we want to know how. How did this happen? What's the timing? That's the big question in Christianity. What's the timing of creation? How did it all fit together? How did God do this? Others want to know why. We're curious. I, too, was curious this week, and I realized just how, I don't, maybe controversial is the wrong word, but just how many opinions there are about creation. There are just as many opinions about creation and how God did it as there are the book of Revelation and how God is going to bring it all to an end and when he's going to bring it all to an end. I felt like I was preaching through Revelation all over again, just with chapter one. But the first two chapters lay for us an important foundation. Martin Luther I read a quote 
uh, one of the commentators quoting Martin Luther, he was asked this question about what was God doing before the creation of the world? Like we know what he's doing once creation's here. We have, it starts here in chapter one, verse one, and, but what was he doing before that? And Luther's reply to that kind of helped set me straight and back on the task of the text. And he said, uh, he, his reply was that God was cutting sticks to cane people who ask such idle questions. <laughs> so I read that and he set me straight. But the foundation, the beginning, the why we'll actually find in the rest of the treasure of Scripture. In Colossians chapter 1, we reread in verse 16, and that, it, it's such a great uh, 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 praise of who Christ is and setting that in place for us when Paul wrote, starting in verse 15, but here I'm referencing verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We understand that creation is for God's glory. Revelation chapter four, verse 11. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So if it was just creation alone and not the rest of the story, God would still deserve and receive glory and honor and power for his creative work. A couple other things before we jump into the text this morning is to, to understand that creation, we understand creation as being distinct from God, that God is above it. We call it transcendence. He's above it. He's, he's not bound to it, but he is above it, greater, independent from his creation. And yet, at the same time, we call it imminent, that God is very much involved in his creation which we have his word that describes how he is involved in his creation. Our existence, our functioning day to day is because of the provision of his hand and that Christ holds everything in his hands. Now, pastor, what about the timing of creation? What, where do we go? Where, how do we solve this problem? Well, you're not going to solve it. We've been... Debating it kindly, I hope, for years and generations upon generations. We've wrestled with the timing of creation. And by that, I mean, is it a 24-hour day that Moses writes about? Is it six days, 24-hour days, and the seventh day, also a 24-hour day, God resting? Or is it a seventh day, full 24-hour day? Because it never says there was morning and there's evening and morning the seventh day. It just kind of leaves it sitting there at rest. Is it, a, is it a time period? Is it, a, is it a, a, the day age, what they call, is, it, is each day a, a geological time period that would allow us to have an old earth time? Or is it the six hour, uh, six 24 hour days? That's the young earth view. Is it God's work days? I mean, because scripture t- says that a thousand years are like a day for God. Is it just a literary device? where creation is fashioned in a week, a a work week, without much concern for the timing of it all. Do we take verses one and two where the word says that the the earth was formless, uh, formless and void? Formless and void, I'll get that word right. 
It's formless and void as a condition resulting from Satan's fall. In between verse 2 and verse 3, there's a long period of time. That's called the gap theory. Well, I'd encourage you at some point to study creation. Study it. Figure out where you're going to fall. But listen, do yourself a favor. Hear what Luther said. Take a dose of humility. All five of those that I just mentioned, none of them require you to deny history and the details of Genesis chapter 1. If you're going to fall in the evolution camp, then you're going to fall outside of Genesis chapter 1. But all those five, whether it's a long period of time or a short period of time, we find humility in this and we find that God is still creator. He still spoke everything into existence that was not And his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Personally, let me tell you where I'm coming from. When I read Genesis chapter 1, I'm settled that it's six literal 24-hour days of creation, God resting on the seventh. That's where I'm at. But if you find it different, I'd be happy to have some chips and salsa with you this week, and you can fill me in on all of your vast knowledge of creation and how much you've studied it, and I'll sit there and nod my head, and I'll thank you, and I'll even pay for your lunch. My point is we may not change each other's minds. We don't have to. We are settled, though, that God is our creator. That is settled. That is not up for debate. God did not use evolution to create. That is a settled debate in my mind. Let's get into the word. If you would stand as I read from Genesis chapter 1, and I'll point out to you along the way why I say he didn't use evolution. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Already we've heard of two of the Trinity active in creation. The third is coming. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruit, uh, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in and according to uh, to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in, in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth in every tree whose fruit contains seed, this will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful, powerful, life-changing reminder of how you put everything into place. It is humbling to read. Father, how much design you put into your, your creation. It is humbling to read how you put everything we would need to sustain life on this place we call home, this place we call earth. That you would care for us to set everything in place, to put us in the exact location in the solar system, the exact distance from the sun, the exact tilt of the planet, every single thing. Father, you have put into place and that on the sixth day you saw that it was good and you were done. Then you rested. Father, may we understand this morning and come to a place where we find that rest in Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. We find here again, of course, the beginning. God, the God of Israel, is going to reveal himself in terms of the winds and the wares of creation of human life in all of history, right here in Genesis chapter 1. You see, God is not just an idea. God has always been, he is now, and he will always be a part of his creation. He is the only eternal being that we can know and experience personally. And we find that in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and the rest of the book. That he created mankind in his image with a very special privilege to know him, to delight in him, and 
to walk with him through this life. The first book of the word of God, we have so much to learn. We're going to journey through Genesis. It's going to take us about two months to go through. We're not going to cover every chapter, but why not start in the beginning? This is a story of creation. This is a story about ourselves, but mostly it is a story about God's glory and how in this story, once you hit chapter three, we'll find how the fall has affected us, has changed our situation, and that death is now going to be a part of our life because of sin. And the rest of the book covers this journey to redemption. You see, Genesis is not only about creation, but Genesis is also a story about grace. You will find, as Paul wrote to Timothy uh, and reminded him, Timothy, if we are faithless, God, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This book of Genesis, this opening book, is a story of grace. For time and time again, those whom God calls God, uh, will not be faithful to him, to always follow him the way he has called him to, and yet God will always remain faithful to his covenant promises that he has made to him, specifically Abraham and on down the line. But when we look at Genesis chapter 1 this morning, the text clearly shows us that God spoke and created everything out of nothing. Listen to Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. So here's what I mean. In the Latin, we call this ex nihilo. That's out of nothing. When God spoke in verse 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God existed before verse 1. Do we know what that looked like? No. We're not going to even chase after it because we don't want to get whipped by the cane that Luther said God was forming for us. But we don't know. But we do know he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. No one created God. He didn't just boop, pop up one day. He's always been. He is now and he will always be. And he didn't just come along traveling through the universe as Marvel might want us to know or Star Wars or Star Trek might, might try to suggest and find a, a little glob of, of, of cells and gases out in space and say, hmm, that looks exactly like what I need to form something. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what it teaches. It teaches us that God spoke and it was. He created everything out of nothing. Psalm chapter 33 verses 6 and 9 say... The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, for he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. Now, if it's coming into existence, it means it did not exist before. This is what God has done in creation. He spoke, and there it is. There wasn't some chance or big bang where it just started, but rather God spoke, and it is. In Acts chapter 4, Luke captures the early church referring to Jesus saying, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. The early church understood who God was as creator. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the author of Hebrews writes, By faith, catch that, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many times do we hear in Genesis chapter 1, God said, God said, God said, and it was, and it happened. It is important to note that word created in the book of Genesis, in the opening chapter. In the beginning, God created. That word created is reserved for God's work. 
That's reserved for God himself. Only God creates in the creation narrative. There's, no, there's nothing else there, no other existence, no other being there. Now, the Trinity is there. That's not what I'm saying. But there's no other one there other than the Godhead that is doing the creating. It is reserved for God. And it's part of the, the, the most important items that God creates, the universe, plant and animal life, which will sustain the ultimate creation, which is mankind. Verse 2 takes us to the next step after that, that the earth was formless and empty. It lacked order. It lacked uh, uh, any, any filling. And yet we see day one, two, and three that God is going to, in his creative work, is going to fill, form the earth, and then he'll fill the earth. So days one, two, three, he's forming. Days four, five, six, he's filling. Kind of helps us understand and see the picture of Genesis chapter one. Forming and filling the earth. As he spoke on day one, all things were created through him, for him, and and by him. Apart from him, nothing was created that was or has been created. So when we read chapter one, we understand there's no possible way that God just threw it all up into the air, all the ingredients, and let them fall, and suddenly, uh, by chance, by luck, uh, they all come together. There is a pattern to Genesis chapter one, to creation. There is an arrangement uh, uh, of how he creates and puts everything in place. And the days will correspond to one another. Day one corresponds to day four. O- almost like a compliment. You can't have day four without day one. Day two to day, day five, day three to day six. Everything he creates on day one is there for day four. Everything on day two is there for day five. Everything on day three is there for day six. Everything from beginning, God has spoke everything into being. He separated the light from the darkness on, on day one. Now, it's interesting to note that that light that is mentioned there at the very beginning is not the sun. That happens on day four. Something that struck me as I was reading through that over and over this week was, wait a minute, there's another place where there is light but no sunshine. You know where it is? It's the book of Revelation. It's at the end. Revelation 22, verse five. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he will be the lamp. He will be our light. Set in place at the beginning, messed up and broken because of sin, Restored by Christ, put back in place. It's a story of scripture. There's another aspect of this creation narrative that God sees what he has created. Part of the repetition is not only God said, God said, God said, but also that he sees what he's creating as good. You catch that a lot? You should hear it in every day. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. It hadn't been messed up by sin yet. God saw that what he created was absolutely good. And there's this other part of the rhythm of Genesis chapter one. There was evening and there was morning one day. There was evening, there was morning second day. I love the rhythm of Genesis chapter one. It really helps us to understand and grasp all that is happening in this place. So in day one, let's look, let's look at this quickly. Day one, he makes the light. Day two, he forms the sky, the atmosphere. Day three, the dry land and its vegetation. It's all ready to sustain life. You'll pick up that phrase as he's formed the earth. You'll pick up the phrase, if you also heard this, if you were listening closely, 
That phrase, according to their kind. That's another part of the rhythm that's happening as he's forming and and filling the earth. This ought to tell you and inform you that there is no element of evolution in Genesis chapter 1. He is very clear when he wrote Genesis chapter 1 to remind us that they were formed according to their kind. You should go through this week and highlight all of those times where that is mentioned. Verse 11, God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. So you can't plant grass and grow roses from the grass that you planted. Pretty, pretty simple concept, right? You'd be surprised. Day four, the sky is filled with the sun, moon, and stars. When the sun, moon, and stars are put into place, they are completed works. They're absolutely exactly where they're supposed to be. You can see he's even listed why. He's given us the sun and the moon and the stars. They are to remind us of the day, the time. He's establishing time here for us. They've established seasons. They've established years. All of those things are intricately designed for us so that we could have life sustained. Not only that, but that God put us the exact distance we needed to be from the sun. Any closer, we might think we're living in North Dakota. Any further away, we might think we're living on the equator. We'd burn up if we're uh, too too close, we'd burn up. Too far away, we'd be colder. We couldn't sustain life. God tilted the earth at 23 degrees exactly where we needed to be. Why? So we would have seasons. Everything that God put into place, every part of creation is exactly as it should be. He even put us on the right amount of speed, on the spin. Any faster, if we rotated any faster, guess what? You'd hate your scale at home even more than you do right now. We might be walking like this trying to get around because gravity is too heavy. Now, any any slower, we might just jump and never come down. Then you'd love your scale at home. (laughs) So many details, so many details. The the deeper we dig, the more we find just how how, how beautiful this creation is and how, and how, he, how, how he goes about forming every single part of it just so that we would have life. And it's not just for us, but more, most importantly, it's for his glory. Day five, he, he forms the water. The, not, excuse me, he doesn't form the waters, but the waters are filled with fish and sea creatures. My fishermen are excited about that. And my bird hunters are excited about the, the, the birds in the sky. I mean, so many beautiful things. We can enjoy his creation Again, you'll hear that phrase, according to their kinds. So catch that. An amoeba didn't cross over into a fish, into a land animal of some kind, into a monkey, and then into a man. Verse 26 is very clear when it says, let us make man in our image. So if you're telling me that evolution has a part in this and that we come from man, then your your God is a monkey, and that's blasphemous, and I would encourage you to back off of that stance. We are created in the image of God. There's no crossing over according to their kinds. 
God said his first blessing, be fruitful and multiply. And so the animal kingdom begins to be fruitful and multiply. Then you have the mammals and the reptiles on day six. Finally, the culmination of creation is man in verse 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. It's the first time God speaks of himself in this way, and he uses the plural us. I believe that is where the Trinity is absolutely involved in creation. We know that because later in the New Testament, that is all attributed to Jesus and the work of creation. But God is revealing to us his triune nature in this moment of creation, the beginning of time. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. This is the Imago Dei, the the image of God that he has put into his creation. Now, Moses doesn't tell us exactly what that looks like, but we we can know a few things. One is that God speaks to creation, and he speaks to Adam and Eve, and they hear him. They have a relationship with him. They hear God's word. They receive God's word. And and even after the fall, even after they sin, you'll remember they hide from him. So there is some kind of perception of God's righteousness in that. He's given his creation, he's given man dominion, that he placed man over certain aspects of his creation. He gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply. Friends, children are a blessing from the Lord and they should be seen as such and welcomed as such. The Imago Dei that God puts, the image of God that puts into us, it defines for us a very special relationship between God and man. It's a unique relationship that's not found anywhere else in all of creation. The fact that we are able to think, that we are able to reason, that we have a will. Some of us have more emotion than others, but we all have emotion. And at this point, all of that is sinless and good on day six and seven when God rests. And as he created man, he did so with dignity. He does give us dominion. And there is a distinction between us and the rest of creation. And then we see day seven. All of creation was completed in those six days. There was nothing left to clean up. Nothing left. Yeah, I don't like that. I need to fix that. Okay, then I'll rest. No, everything was good. And he rested. He rested from his work of creation. Was he tired? No. He wasn't tired. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's not going to be tired. The word says that he rested from his work of creation. There's no more creating to be done. It's finished. He completed it. Now he is still at work. Jesus says in John 5, verse 17, my father is still working and I am working also. He rested from the work of creating But we know he watches us. He watches over his creation. We know that he cares about us. We know that he was involved intricately in sending his son, passionately to send his son to the cross because he loves his creation. But God rested from his work of creation. And in that, he set in place a pattern for us today to rest. It's important that we rest. You know you can't go multiple days without resting. He put it into us. He wired us that way. But there's a more important rest that is to come that we must also take part in. So, creation. I didn't answer all your questions about how and why and the timing. That's not the point this morning. The point is, how does this apply to me as I follow and grow as a disciple of Christ? It is for the glory of God. It is always for the glory 
of God. There is all throughout the Bible a pointing to one who is to come. Now, we don't see it in Genesis chapter 1 just yet, but by the time you get to chapter 3, God had told Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of his creation, that they could eat from every tree, everything that was there was there there for them to eat. It was for their good, except one thing, right? You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They did exactly what God said not to do. Eve was tempted by the serpent. Adam came along and ate as well. They fell because of sin. Sin entered the world in in, in Genesis chapter 3. And from that moment on, you'll see that God's judgment is that there's going to be hardship. There's always consequences to our sin, always. There is no sin that does not have some kind of consequence to it. But we'll see clearly in verse 15 that in that moment, God is going to send a redeemer. He is going to send someone to redeem his creation from the consequences of their sin. He's going to send someone to pay for the consequences of that sin. We've been reading a book uh, every evening as in our family. We finished it this last week. It's by Kevin DeYoung. It's a little storybook that just kind of tells the story of the Bible and for the kids to, to hear and, and just try to, we always try to build that into our, our days. Sometimes we're successful, but that doesn't matter. But I really loved what Kevin DeYoung, how he phrased Genesis 3.15. He called Jesus the snake crusher. I was like, yeah, because it says he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Some versions there actually do use the words crush. I love that. Jesus, the snake crusher, he is going to come. Our redeemer is going to come and crush him. Why? Because paradise was lost. That relationship was broken. That was there so beautifully in the garden, but is broken by sin. And now humanity is sin. As in Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sin and we will face death because of our sin. But here comes the redeemer, that snake crushing redeemer for the first time in Genesis 3.15. And that's how Christ, that's how we, we, what we pull away from this this morning. Who is Christ in this? He is the redeemer of Genesis 3.15, but there's more to it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. And he's standing in the Areopagus and he's, he's proclaiming, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's sharing the gospel. It's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story of a a man like Paul, a a servant of God, preaching and proclaiming in the midst of all the modern-day philosophers of his time. They're there spouting off all their knowledge, uh, uh, knowledge of man. And here comes Paul, and he starts preaching the gospel. We know that that sounds foolishness to those who think they're wise. In fact, they say in verse 18 of Acts 17, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? And so that gives Paul the opportunity to share and preach the gospel. And he begins talking about this this idol, this statue, where there's an inscription to an unknown God. And he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I'm about to tell you who he is. I proclaim him to you. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over all the earth. That's Adam. And he has determined and appointed their times and the boundaries of where they would live. 
He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, get this, in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think of that divine nature like gold or silver or some kind of statue or stone, an image fashioned by human hands and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day that he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, that is Jesus Christ, that he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Friend, Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation. Colossians chapter one tells us that he holds everything in the palm of his hands. It is all held together by him. If he were to take his hand off and look away, man, you think it's chaotic now. You hadn't seen 2020 like you'd see it if Christ had taken his hand off of it. This is the Christ that he has come from creation to the cradle to the cross, everything, even the resurrection, all for the glory of God to restore what was broken in the fall. Now, earlier I mentioned that there is this light in Genesis. That, uh, Moses wrote about it there, the opening, let there be light. Talked about it in the book of Revelation. This is Christ. He claimed it for himself. Did you know? In John chapter 8, verse 12, he's speaking in the temple and he says, I am the light of the world. That was an audacious claim, a bold claim of who he was. I am the light of the world. Right after, the Israelites at the time would have celebrated the festival and they would have had all their candles lit all night long as a reminder of the glory of God that led them through the through the wilderness, that's the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. And that here he is saying, I am the light of the world. I am that light. I am that light of Genesis chapter one. I am that light there in the beginning, and I am the light of the world. I am the light at the end. Revelation 21, 23 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's the Lamb of God. Christ is the light of the world. He's also our creator and sustainer. John says in uh, John chapter one, in him was life and that life was the light of men. Everything is created and sustained by him and for him and through him, Colossians says uh, from Paul. Revelation four again, Lord God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Colossians 1.17, he, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is our light. He is our life. He is our creator. But is he your savior? Because if you know him as savior, you enter his rest. Christ is also our rest. Rest from what? Trying to earn it. Trying to pay for our sins somehow. Trying to atone for the mistakes that we make for the sin, the, the direct violations of God's will that every single one of us is guilty of. Rest from carrying our burdens, the burden, mostly the burden of sin. Out of the darkness, out of the chaos of our lives, Christ brings order and he brings rest. He brings rest because not only is he the light of the world, the creator, the son of God, but he is our savior. When Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished, it was then that Jesus rested from his work of Paying the penalty for our sins. Hebrews 
The book of Hebrews speaks of a Sabbath rest for God's people, but guess what? They never, they never knew it. Why? Because they kept turning away from God. Even though God was faithful constantly, never stopped being faithful, they would turn away from God. They never entered his rest. But beloved, Christ on the cross purchased that rest. And if you will trust in him today, you will know the God of creation. That relationship that was broken in Genesis is now restored because of the blood of Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friend, that's not just, oh my gosh, I've got taxes coming up. I've got lots of burdens coming up. I've got tests coming up. I've got to move. I've got a job change. We've got all these family problems. Those are burdens that he cares about, and we are to cast them upon him. But the greatest burden we must cast upon him is the burden of our sin that has separated us from him. We must bring that to him. That, is, that only is where we will find the rest. So when he says, come to me, you're weary, you're burdened, you're burdened because of your sin. And he will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me by faith and trust because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. God rested. And he wants you to come into his rest today. Trust him today if you have never trusted him before. can't just give him a portion. You've got to give it all, every single bit, all of your trust. Give it to him today, and you will find rest. If you've come to trust in Christ, then you know the rest I'm talking about. You rest in Christ and not in yourself. Because in Christ, the burden of guilt is lifted. That relationship is restored. Augustine said, is quoted as saying, and I think he's right, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee.